God, we bow at the name of Jesus. God, where beauty and power meet. Lord, where your infinite love was made manifest to us. Lord, we speak your name over every trial, over every temptation in our life because you are powerful. God, we draw near to you. We find joy and peace in your presence because you are beautiful. God, we sing your praises here this morning because you are worthy. Lord, the heavens are roaring and we join along with the song. Lord Jesus, may you be enthroned here this morning. God, would you draw near to us? We love you. We thank you for this time where we could sing your praises as one community. It's in your name we sing and we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome, guys. You can grab a seat. Uh, if you are a child, third grade or under, I believe your teachers will be waiting for you at the back. So you can go find them. Well, if I told you that there was this whole unseen reality swirling around the room right now, affecting each one of us, you might think that I was a bit crazy. And so for the ancients, they had uh, this intersection between heaven and earth, this unseen world uh, where the, the, the divinities, the divine pantheon, the spirits that were unseen were always present, always near. And for us, we have different realities swirling around us. See, right now, there are signals being sent in every corner of this room. They're bouncing off the walls. Uh, They're even coming into this microphone. Because we live in a reality of a different unseen world. Uh, For the ancients, the, the most important question was, are the gods angry? Are they upset? For us, the most important question is, what is the Wi-Fi password? Right? We're all in tune with this reality that affects every part of our existence. Uh, There is nothing funnier. We go to a camp with our students uh, that's in upstate New York. And for certain cell providers, they just just don't cover that area. And so to watch a 15-year-old girl without cell phone service... You would think that we had introduced some form of torture that was, you know forever unbeknownst to, to humankind before then. And so, you think about it this way. If you go to somebody's house, you know you have a good friend if you don't have to ask for the Wi-Fi password. Am I right? Like, that's how you know. You're, you're, in, a, you're in good company at that point. You're in somebody's house that you should be very comfortable with. You know, as Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, he didn't have to convince them that there was this unseen world. They lived in that reality. But for us, the, the tension is always that we, we don't really buy into the fact that there may be things beyond what we can see. Everything beyond what we can see, we can sort of parse out and identify as something microscopic. I don't know how many of you, I have certain rituals that I follow when I use public restrooms. Uh, because of these microscopic realities, some of them some of them unseen, some of them very plainly seen. Uh, so for me, if I'm using a public restroom, don't, don't visualize too much, but I will, I, I do this thing, it's the only time I ever do yoga, but I lift my foot up to flush the toilet, right? Because, you know, there are realities that cannot be seen that are very disgusting and gross. Now, how many of you don't flush with your foot, but you flush with your hand? You don't, you don't want to admit it, right? Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. 
because you're flushing with your hand, all that stuff that was on the floor uh, by the bathroom, I've been stepping in, and then now I have lifted my foot up and flushed the toilet with my foot. That's on your hand. You're going to die. Just plain and simple. We live in a world uh, that, that intersects between what we can see and what we can't see. Uh, C.S. Lewis, at the outset of the screw tape letters, he says, you know, the danger when it comes to talking about Satan or unseen evil in, in all its forms, that we will take it far too seriously. And I, I've had this experience in my life. My grandfather dealt with some rather colorful characters who, who, who would seek out demons in people and would try to cast them out. There's some very charismatic folks. And so I've, I've seen this in my own world. Uh, but, but C.S. Lewis also, he, he says that the opposite may be true. He said, you, you can take the thing too seriously. You can see demons around every corner, but you might make the opposite error and assume that there is no evil in the world, that there is no Satan. Uh, we, we read last time uh, from a quote from Kevin Spacey, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And so, if you're skeptical here, can I just invite you? If you're here saying, okay, is this guy going to tell us that there are, there's a little guy in a red suit with a pointy, pointy ears and a tail and a pitchfork and he's, he's wandering around the room right now? Well, no, not necessarily. The, we're not going to lean into this caricature that our society often gives us of what it means to, to really acknowledge that there might be evil in the world. But if you're a skeptic, or if you're just somebody prone to ask questions of how things are, maybe you've asked the question that Ivan Karamazov poses in Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. He says, if all, if all must suffer to pay for the eternal harmony of the world, if God putting all things right requires the suffering of one small child, he asks, what have children to do with it? He says, tell me please. This is in this chapter where uh, Dostoevsky entitles it The Problem of Evil. And so the question that we're wrestling with is not, are there unseen spiritual forces? Paul's going to say, yes, there are. But the question that we're wrestling with is, how do these line up with God's good world? How do these align with God's plan? You see, essentially, Ivan is asking the age-old question that we all should encounter at some place. If there is an all-powerful, all-loving God, then how can there be evil in the world? This question is one that should, as, as Christians, as people of faith, should give us pause. Now, the New Testament bears witness to a struggle, a cosmic battle for the peace of the world and the souls of humanity. The Scriptures don't, don't go to the lengths of explaining evil because in many ways, evil is nothing. It, it is a privation. It is absence. E- evil is not a thing. It has no uh, reality to it. God is reality. God is existence. And so evil is everything that is anti-God and anti-life. The Scriptures don't go to the lengths to explain evil. But, you know, like, be, because evil is an absence doesn't mean it can't be felt. Have any of you ever run over a pothole? It was the absence in the road that you felt. If the road were to be uh, concrete and to be solid, then you would have been fine, right? But you're, si- you're stuck in a body shop getting your front end worked on because there was an absence. Evil is everything that is anti-God and anti-life. But it doesn't mean that we don't deal with its forces in our world. And this is what Paul is going to lean into as we look at the book of Ephesians. I want to start in Ephesians chapter 1 because Ephesians is a book about power. 
It's a book about power at every turn. The power of grace. The power of adoption. The power of faith. The power of prayer. The power of reconciliation. Paul is writing to this church and saying, you have been given this power that has not been seen in the world because of what Jesus has done. And he writes in his prayer in Ephesians 1, he says, I pray, I pray that God will reveal to you what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe. According to the working of his great power, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his, Christ's feet, and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. You notice that Paul doesn't talk in the future tense right there? He doesn't say that someday that Christ will be enthroned over all, that someday all things will be put under his feet. He says this is the reality right now. And so the question that we're sort of drawn into is if, if Christ is reigning and ruling right now, and then when I pick my head up and I look at the world, and I see all these signs, all these, these markers of a world that is unjust and cruel, how can these two things be at the same time true? How can Christ be reigning over a world that, that contains so much hurt and so much pain? N.T. Wright gives us a helpful analogy that I think sort of lands us in where we are in time. He talks about World War II. And he says that on June 6, 1944, uh, the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy. Uh, it's estimated that almost 400,000 lives were lost that day between both sides. But these, these brave men and women uh, took the beaches a, 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 in the face of great adversity and almost certain death. But in that moment, when they took the beaches of Normandy, when they won that battle, the war, World War II, was effectively over. That, that that great uh, audacious move to, to storm the beaches effectively ended the war. Now the war was not officially over until uh, the next year. But in that moment, the war, the, the, the Axis powers were in some sense disarmed. And N.T. Wright says that we as the church live in this sort of tension between two ages. We live between the cross when the victory was won, that, that Christ is seated above all powers and all authorities. But we live in an age where we are putting that rule and that victory into effect. And so that's where these two things begin to pull at us. We live in a world that is now and not yet. We live as the people of God into the victory of Jesus Christ. But that victory is everywhere we look, we see casualties. We see pain, we see suffering, and our task as the church is to lean into Christ's victory, even into those really difficult places. And so we live between these two ages, and this is where Paul meets us at the end of Ephesians, as we wrap up our Ephesians series today. He's going to give his church one final exhortation, one final call to stand. And so we turn there, if, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, if you have a, a hard copy Bible, it's a... Great thing to have. If not, the, uh, the scriptures will be behind us on the screen. But don't use that as an excuse for cheating. If you have a Bible, use it. Um, 
Paul writes in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In verse 10, Paul brings us back to our fundamental reality. He says, he says therefore, finally, be strong in the Lord. In Christ Jesus, you can be strong. Not because you're strong in yourself, but because He has already stood. He is strong. And in any story worth telling, there is this moment where the main characters are awakened to a reality that they did not know previously existed. Uh, these stories of struggle uh, oftentimes involve a character coming of age in, in learning how much they'll have to sacrifice, how much they'll have to give. And these are the stories that we're drawn to. If you were to watch a story that had no, uh, no struggle, no uh, things that was, was working against the good and the main characters, it would be a pretty boring story, Right? And so in any story, God, in any story, the author is trying to, to tell us that there is something bigger going on here. And this is what Paul is doing. He's, he's enlisting them into the fight. And he says that our struggle, our struggle is not against blood and flesh. Now, it's very important to grasp this. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against enemies that we can see very often. And this is so important because we live in a world with its ideologies that we can often so easily demonize people who think differently than we do. And we, we demonize not just their thinking or their way of, we demonize them. And so Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Friends, your struggle is not against Donald Trump. Your struggle is not against Barack Obama. Your struggle is not against liberals or, or conservatives. Your struggle is not against those people. Your struggle is not against Kim Jong-un or whoever leads ISIS. Your struggle is not against your boss, your coworkers, your family. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Your struggle is not against people that you can name. If you can name them as an enemy, if you can name them as an individual, your struggle is not against them. Jesus says it for us very plainly in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you have heard it said, it was said long ago that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, I give you a new law, a new way of living, that you are to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Friends, the enemies that you know by name, you are to love. Plain and simple. For in the grand scheme of things, they are not your enemy. They're a child of God. Even the worst person may be redeemed yet by God's infinite love. Your enemy is not a person that you can name. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So, 
If Paul is saying that our struggle is not against enemies in flesh and blood, then who are we to fight? He says against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Um, I'm going to kind of coalesce these terms into one term I'm going to call the powers. I think Paul is describing different realities, but he's kind of using, he's, he's, excuse me, he's describing the same reality, but he's kind of using different terms. And so what are these powers? Especially because we live in what philosopher Charles Taylor calls a disenchanted world. We, we believe in what we can see, we believe in what we can measure, and anything beyond that we're a little bit skeptical of. So what is Paul talking about here in Ephesians 6? These authorities, these spiritual forces in the heavenly places, uh, as it says here in verse 12, or excuse me, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That term there means the, the strategy, the methods of the devil, the working of the evil one against us. And so what are these powers? Uh, philosopher David Bentley Hart writes, in the New Testament, our condition as fallen creatures is explicitly portrayed as subjugation, as slavery, that we are enslaved to something larger than ourselves. This subjugation is to the authority of angelic and demonic powers, which are not able to defeat God's transcendent and providential governance of all things, but which certainly are able to act against Him within the limits of cosmic time. This age is ruled by spiritual and terrestrial thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, by the elements of the world and by the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2, who while they cannot ultimately separate us from God's love, Romans 8, nevertheless contend against us. What Bentley Hart is saying here is that we were created for freedom to know God, but in using that freedom to serve our own ends, we sell ourselves into slavery to sin. Paul in Romans 6 says, Friends, no longer use, no longer use your members, what could be uh, termed as weapons, instruments, as, as uh, instruments of slavery and of death, but instead use them as, as sl- enslavement to righteousness. Walter Wink, another scholar who spent a lot of time thinking about this reality of the powers, the reality that we live in a world that is at war and is at conflict, uh, he says that essentially the powers... Are, are the sum total of spiritual energy that humans put into organizations, companies, societies, legislative bodies, and even churches. That the powers are something that extend beyond the reality of any one human being. The powers are essentially collusion between God-given human authority and unseen spiritual forces. If you, if you think about it like this, the powers are like a nefarious foreign power that's trying to get uh, some unwitting government official to, to collude with them, to give them information. This is what the powers try to do in our lives. You see, God has created us for freedom, for authority. He made us in His image. But when we use that God-given freedom for things that aren't God's ends, that things that aren't a part of God's plan, then we collude with the powers of darkness. Perhaps an example would be helpful. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s life, his lived life, his mission is a model for how we as a community are to be resistant to the powers. You see, as he sat in a Birmingham jail, arrested for protesting segregation that was already deemed unlawful, but still present in Birmingham, Alabama, Dr. King both named the powers and he named a way forward against them. 
Uh, this letter is, is absolutely stunning. Uh, he's sitting in a jail cell with no, no access to books or to Scripture, and he quotes so many people, philosophers and theologians. He quotes so many Scripture verses. I mean, the guy was just brilliant. But as he sits there writing his letter, when we look at who he's responding to, we can see how these powers begin to infringe upon even some things that seem good. And this is what I want for us to see this morning. You see, in his letter, he responds to white clergymen uh, who have condemned King's protests as antagonistic and divisive. The the white churches in Alabama are saying, well, Dr. King, you should be patient. You should wait. And, And he's saying, we've waited long enough. And King's extended response shows a heightened awareness of the powers and how they collude and work against the good purposes of God in the world. The way they intertwine to oppress people and to dehumanize them. In the letter he addresses, and this is just a list of of what Dr. King identifies in our language as the powers, he he addresses the white church in the South, Christian moderates who would not stand with their black brothers and sisters. He addresses segregation itself, unjust laws, harsh political and law enforcement authorities, complacency in parts of the black community due to meager economic gains, the loss of passion and resolve in other parts of the black community from centuries of having their God-given dignity infringed upon, violent elements rising in other parts of the black community as a lashing out against oppression. He names all of these things in this letter, and he speaks out against uh, time, even time itself as a tool of oppression. You know, honestly, we could read this whole letter, and it'd be a fantastic sermon, uh, but I'm going to read a, a large paragraph just to kind of uh, give us a framework for this. King writes, he says, There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period when the early Christians rejoiced, when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the early Christians enter a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators but they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven they had to obey god rather than man they were small in number but big in commitment they were too god intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated i i have to say that's something only a black preacher could write that is so good they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests Things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. Dr. King names the powers And sometimes these powers are things as good as a church locally. And what Dr. King does in naming and standing against the powers is completely energized and inspired by the work of Jesus on the cross and the gift of His Spirit. You see, guys, the powers did not cease to be in Paul's day. They didn't cease to be in Martin Luther King's day. They didn't cease to be in Jesus' day. They are alive And they are working the schemes and the methods of the devil in our world today. 
But Paul writes, he writes in in an accompanying letter to the Colossian church, he writes that Jesus has overcome the powers, that he has disarmed, Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them. In verse 14 it says he nailed them to the cross. Jesus confronted the powers of his age, the powers of a Roman government that was so blasphemous and arrogant that it thought it ran the world, the powers of a religious system that could actually crucify the Son of God, the powers of the hatred of humanity, the powers of sin and death. Jesus took them and he nailed them to a cross. Amen. Jesus unmasked the powers on the cross and he has given us, his church, a way forward to stand against them. You see, on the cross, the powers of the world conspired to kill Jesus. But Jesus stood. And this is why Paul in Ephesians 6, if you read that passage that we read, starting in verse 10, it says, Stand. Stand. Stand again. Stand firm. And having done all you can do to stand, stand. Because Jesus has already stood. Paul says, Stand in the strength of the Lord. In Him you are strong. Stand, as he he tells him, in the whole armor of God. Because Jesus walked The hill of Calvary, stripped of everything, naked and exposed, bleeding to the deepest realities of human hatred and demonic evil, we can stand. We can walk the world in the armor of God. We can take off our fig leaves of shame and put on the belt of truth, the the breastplate of righteousness, shoes to proclaim the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. Because our God stood. He disarmed the powers. And guys, these powers aren't just these large structures that that sort of work in our society. These powers are the thing that have convinced you that you will always be the sum of your darkest fears. That you will always be uh, caught in your darkest moment. That you are forever lost in your sin. These powers stand against us and Jesus has disarmed them. He has named them. He has unmasked them. And He has nailed them to a cross We are no longer subject to these powers because of Jesus. Because He stood for us. And Paul, in telling the Ephesians to put on the armor of God, is telling the the church that we've been conscripted into this fight. This is like his last, if you've ever watched a football game and sometimes they show the coach before the game pumping up his troops. This is Paul doing this. And if, you know, the greatest coach that ever was, Eric Taylor on Friday Night Lights, He pumps them up and he says, clear eyes, full hearts. Can't lose. You can't lose. Because Jesus has stood for us. Ephesians 3.10 says, it's the job of the church. It's the job of this gathering of people in some small, majorly significant way to make known to the powers the manifest wisdom of God. And so how do we do that? How do we stand against the powers? Uh, Because I... I tend to think that when you talk about these big, large, overarching structures, it gets a little overwhelming. If I were to talk to you about world hunger today, we would all walk out of here feeling very sad. Because it's that overwhelming sense of, there's nothing I can do, it's too big for us. But we are strong in Jesus. We're strong in the Lord, not in our own strength. And so, what are some things that we can do to make manifest these powers, uh, to make manifest to these powers that God has disarmed them? Well, look at verse 18. Paul writes, 
He says, pray in the Spirit at all times, in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for the saints. And so, guys, I think the first thing that Paul tells us, beyond putting on the armor of God, and that's, that's a whole different sermon in itself, is pray in the Spirit at all times. Prayer in the Spirit empowers and energizes life in the Spirit. And in the previous verse, he calls the Word of God uh, the, the sword of the Spirit. And so uh, I think sometimes when, when we talk about what does it mean to pray in the Spirit, well, you could do worse than starting with God's Word, than, than praying these things over your life. You could do worse than starting with Ephesians. Some of, some of Paul's prayers in chapter 1 and chapter 3 are some of the most just overarching, beautiful, cosmic sort of prayers that we could pray over our lives. Pray in the Spirit. Prayer in the Spirit enables us to live by the faith that Paul and, 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 by extension, Jesus is calling us to. Prayer in the Spirit enables us to see the work of the powers in this world, guys. We don't live in a world that is neutral. There are things that are vying for your affections, vying for your worship. We're, we were created by God to worship Him and Him alone. And as Paul is saying here in Ephesians 6, there are so many things that are vying for that attention, for that affection. And so we pray in the Spirit. The second thing we can do. I love, I've been watching with my, my wife. We, uh, we rarely find new Netflix shows. So this is not, if you want to talk to us about the latest and greatest, I don't know. I haven't seen it. Uh, I've become old very fast, I've found. I've, I've found my like three things and I'm very happy with them. But we did find a new show. Uh, by, there's a chef named Anthony Bourdain. And he, his show, Parts Unknown, where he just goes to all these kind of off-the-beaten-path places. And it's, a, it's an amazing show. The guy is, like, I've traveled with somebody very much like him. He will eat anything. Uh, which, you know, certain places doesn't work out so poorly. But when you're in uh, some parts of the world, uh, you get to eat things like gizzards and, uh, you know, chicken hearts. I, I remember we were in Brazil after my sophomore year of college. And... You would go, like, Brazilians know how to eat. And if you've ever met a Brazilian and they invite you over to a barbecue, the answer is yes. The answer is I will be there. And so we, uh, we would, we've been eating, I probably you know, put on a nice 25 pounds during this trip, about two weeks. And what we, in one of the towns we went to a pizza place, which I was like, okay, you know, Brazilians know how to eat, let's, you know, let's try their pizza. The pizza was good. They had some, some different toppings that I had tried. But what they would do is because Brazilians know how to eat, they just b- keep bringing you food until you literally surrender. They have, a, they have a flag that you put up that just says, no more, I'm done. And so they kept bringing food out and they would bring out these different flavors. And if you've ever been, has anybody ever been to CeCe's? This is like confession time, right? It turns out CeCe's is not good. Just after living in New Jersey, I figured this out very quickly. But it's kind of an all-you-can-eat thing going on here. And so they, bring, they keep bringing the pizza. And at one point, they brought over a pizza, and they would tell you the topping. They would say the name. Obviously, I don't speak Portuguese, so I would kind of take it on faith that this was okay. But at one point, they come over, and they go, Corazon. And I was like, huh. Oh, Spanish. I studied a little Spanish in high school. Uh, that's a, that's a romance language. I think Portuguese is a romance language too. And, uh, oh, Corazon means heart. These beautiful people had taken chicken hearts and put them on a pizza. 
which was challenging my whole paradigm that said that anything on a pizza would be good. I was like, hmm, I don't know about that. So uh, needless to say, I stomached a chicken heart because you've got to be kind, you've got to be respectful. But Anthony Bourdain travels and he eats all these random things. But one of the things that he points out, one of the things that he, he goes to these places that are often war-torn or often rebuilding, and he, and he wants to know their story. He wants to know what makes them tick. He does a great one on New Jersey if you're just in love with New Jersey. You want to see what he has to say about that. But he goes to these places, and his favorite thing in the show is just grilled meat. Amen, Anthony. And every place he goes, he goes to the street markets or the place where they're grilling up some random animal, uh, anything from squirrel to, you know, something we would find a little more palatable. And he just, like, you can see his whole world light up. And he says, he says, you know, I think a lot of the problems of the world would be solved if people from differing factions could just sit down together over a barbecue. And this is a... (laughs) One of the ways that we make manifest the powers uh, to the powers that the wisdom of God has overcome them is we're together. And so we live as one in the Spirit. We sit down to meals together. We enjoy God's presence together. We gather together. This is God inviting us to live as an embodiment of His new kingdom. And so guys, friends, I encourage you in this room to find people, to, to, to share meals together because as we do this, This is what Jesus came doing. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. As we gather together, we we declare to the world that there is a different reality, that we don't have to be divided by political opinions or by race lines or by how much money we make. There is a different way of ordering the world. And this is what Jesus has made manifest when Paul talks about that you are made one in Christ. Ignatius of Antioch says this. He says, Take heed then often. To come together, as we're doing here this morning, to give thanks to God and to show forth His praise. For when you assemble frequently in the same place, the powers of Satan are destroyed. And the destruction at which he aims is prevented by the unity of your faith. Nothing, nothing is more precious than peace, by which all war, both in heaven and on earth, is brought to an end. Guys, when we gather together, it matters. It matters. It has this eternal significance that we can't even name. The last thing. To pray in the Spirit. Be one in the Spirit. The last thing is to live in the freedom of the Spirit. Guys, these powers don't just work on us at a, at a larger level. They work on us in, in every part of the darkest places of our hearts. These, these places that want to keep us in bondage, that want to keep us in uh, enslavement to sin, that want to tell us that things will always be as they have been because God has spoken a new word over you. He said, you're not, you're not your, your, deepest, uh, your darkest sins or the things that you want nobody to know about. You can confess those in freedom because God has disarmed the powers. He's spoken a new word. To be in Christ is to be free of guilt and shame and ultimately of the power of death. We're no longer slaves to sin. We are His. And guys, if you hear nothing else, let me announce to you today that God, the God of all the universe, the God over every authority and power, the beautiful sovereign Lord, He has liberated you. He's disarmed the things that stood against you because He wants to know you. 
He wants to draw near. He wants to, to take those things that you've said, no God, nobody can fix that. Nobody can make anything of that. He wants to draw near and lean into those deepest places of brokenness in your life. He wants to free you. Live in the freedom of the Spirit. The eternal God knows your name and He calls you friend. And He's inviting us today, much like we talked about sitting down to a barbecue, He's inviting us to a table. So I invite the ushers, those who are facilitating communion, to take their place. We sit down to the table of the Lord as friends of God because He's disarmed the powers. He's canceled the written code that stood against us. He's nailed them to a cross. And so church, as we gather this morning, we bear witness to the fact that our God is making all things new. That there is nothing that could separate us from His beautiful love. And as we approach the table this morning, I just want to lead us in a confession. Uh, You can say it right where you sit. And then the ushers are going to pass the elements. And then we will respond in a song of worship. And so friends, would you join me as we confess the disparity between God's good world and where we have participated in it. And I hope, friends, that you'll be invited into God's beautiful, beautiful kingdom, the way that He's working in the world. So read with me. Merciful Father. Read that up. Thank you. Merciful Father, we have exchanged Your armor of peace for fig leaves of shame. Forgive us for worshiping things and not the living God. Forgive us for colluding with enslaving powers, knowing or unknowingly. Your Spirit is calling us to life, life full and true. May Your grace clothe us with the beauty of freedom. May Your Spirit knit us together as a people under Your name. We are Yours. Amen. Let me pray over you. Ushers, you can go ahead and pass. God, you're gracious, you're good. Thank you for this beautiful, beautiful gathering where we can embody the reality that the code that was, was standing against us is no longer biting. God, may we confess to you our sins. May we approach you in freedom, Lord, as we would a, a father who loves us or a friend who enjoys us. God, you are delighting over us here this morning. God, you have done the work of disarming the powers. We stand in your freedom. We stand in your strength. God, would you lead us in the beauty of holiness and the sanctity of your spirit. God, would you make us new. We love you, Father. It's in your name we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.